Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, head to isuencounter.org or download our student app to learn about all that's happening here. Thanks for listening. Hey, so in worship, we often, just culturally, this is what we do in the room, we often applaud at the end of a song. And just in case, I don't know, you're not around this a lot, that's not applause for these guys, right? That's like at the end of, which it might feel that way because this is sort of a stage and these are sort of seats and that sort of feels like a performance, but it's not. Uh, The applause that we give is for the creator of the universe who we're meeting with here tonight. That being said, can you thank them for leading worship for us? Can we do that? So that one's for you guys. Thanks for leading worship. Um, Tonight, I want to talk to you about something that I don't think is heavy. Uh, You might, I'll let you interpret the way that you interpret tonight. Um, But there there is a component to it that has that risk, as I'm putting it out there. This isn't the sermon I planned on preaching tonight. It is the the scripture I planned on preaching tonight. But every once in a while, as you prep uh, in these things, uh, you feel like God kind of grabs your heart and moves you a slightly different direction. Tonight and a week from tonight, our turning point uh, comes in the life of Moses. I'm really excited to preach both of them. But as we looked at this particular spot, as we're going to look at this particular spot in Moses' life, um, again, the topic I thought I would be talking with you guys tonight about isn't the topic that I, I'm going to be talking on tonight. Uh, Joe and I, uh, two weeks from, from tonight, really, the, the following day we were going to leave for Israel, uh, it's been a dream of mine to go to the Holy Land forever because I spend a lot of my life immersed in these texts and all these different locations. And, and so we've been, we've been planning since winter of last year to go. I've been doing research on all of these places. It's a bucket list thing. And then obviously with the war that's, you know, between Hamas and Hezbollah and Israel and all that's going on there right now, that trip has been canceled. And it's not disappointing and here's what I mean by that. I, it's really difficult when, I, when I've seen, if you haven't been paying attention, it is, it is horrific what's happening in Israel right now and in Gaza, the loss of human life there. And so, you know, a bunch of rockets were fired and innocent civilians were slaughtered. And, and I mean, this happened a few weeks ago and then a war was launched on that. And so just the, the loss of human life there is, is horrifying. Um, there's a lot of videos that I've come across where I've, I've just chosen not to watch because I know what they're getting ready to show. And if you look at the world, you guys, we've been talking, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, which I don't even know how, how far we are into that. Some sources say there are as many as 300,000, almost 300,000 Russian casualties alone, which is, I mean, dead or injured in that conflict that sits there. And those two, if you look at the news right now, you know, Russia and Ukraine, they're talking a lot about Russia in Ukraine. They're talking a lot about Israel and Gaza. Um, but if you look globally, are you aware that there are wars right now against terror groups in Algeria, Ghana, Sudan, Tanzania, Tunisia, Uganda, Yemen, and others? Civil wars that exist in Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Libya, and Syria. Drug wars that exist right now in Colombia and Mexico. Tons of human trafficking in those two places. Ethnic cleansing that's happening in South Sudan. Like, you look at the world right now, and you think, something is broken. I mean, you have to have your eyes closed. And part of you right now may be like, yeah, man, what's going on with the world right now? No, you guys, this is normal. You understand? I've been on this planet a few decades longer than most of you, all right? This is normal. 
The only way that you don't understand that this is happening globally is to take your eyes off the news, because it's happening somewhere. There is evil that exists in the world, period. It just does. It sits out there. I don't know who in this room would fight me on that and be like, no, nah, I don't think there's evil anywhere. All right, All right. well, let me show you some news. How do we interact with that? That truth that we believe in a God who is good, who loves us, who loves this world, and that evil exists and is destroying humanity at the same time. How do we understand that? How do we interact with that? I mean, I know that's a big, big, big question, but that's what I want to kind of gently put our arms around tonight. How do we understand how there's brokenness in this? And, it, and if you go and look culturally, you know, people do not understand the God that we talk about. And I know this is, I'm going to put this out there. This is going to sound a little bit weird, but I'll explain it, all right? Because this is like an actual phrase that I saw on an internet message board thing. It's like when people are talking about faith, and they're like, of all of this garbage that's going on in the, in the world, children, kids losing their lives in the Middle East right now, you're telling me that God cares what, your God cares what I do in my bedroom? Like, you really have the audacity that, to tell me that God cares whether I masturbate or not while there's children dying in Israel and Gaza? That's like legitimately the questions, the cultural questions that people are asking right now. And it's a legit question. Why are you telling me that God is so interested in these little intricate sins in my life when this giant other glaring stuff sits out there? Now, when that question is asked, and it does get asked, I, I have to put this out there. It's, it's, it's not the right question. It's not a bad question. But it's sort of like if you came to me and you said, hey, Ben, why are, like, all tomatoes blue? Why is that true? It's like, well, okay, I got I to gotta back this question up because there's some assumptions based into your question that I just don't understand. For example, did you mean to use the word tomato? Because I've never seen a blue tomato in my life. Was blue really the word that you meant to use? Have you ever seen... Have, have you only seen two tomatoes and were both of those blue and why? It's like I have tons of questions that I have to back away from your question to answer because the question itself is sort of wrong. That question of why does God care about these little intimate things in my life? Why does God care about sin? That's the churchy word, right? Why does God care about sin when there's all this other evil that exists in the world? Tonight, I have to back away from that question a little bit because there's a couple of assumptions that sit in that that are just broken, they're wrong. They reveal that you and I don't know some things about God's nature and who he is. And sin, that churchy word, just, it, which means death and decay and brokenness. So that's what I want to step toward tonight. That's where the scripture takes us, I believe, tonight. And so the interesting thing here is all of us will agree that sin exists out there, that evil exists out there. But it's an entirely different thing to, to bring it in personally, to bring it in within me. Don Miller is an author. I love the way that he put it. He talked about how he was an activist for a long time, and so he, you know, he believed that he could solve a bunch of these world's problems, and he said, it was a crazy day when I realized that one of the biggest problems was, and I'm going to quote, that needy beast of a thing that lives within my chest. In other words, there was a day where he realized all these problems and all this evil isn't just out there, it's also in here. Why do I live out these selfish desires? Why do I want things that aren't mine to have? Why do I let anger take control of me? Why do I live in revenge fantasies of other people? Why do I struggle with gossip? Why do I want things that aren't mine? It's like, 
And he said, I finally realized that what I was struggling with wasn't just evil out there, it was evil in here. That's an entirely different question when it comes to us understanding. And we're going to learn really next week, or this week and next week, when we talk about the life of Moses, these are not good turning points for him. A lot of the ones we've talked about are. This one's actually a pretty difficult, well, these two are both pretty difficult moments for Moses. So before I get to the text, one more thing. We need to understand the nature of God and who he is and the nature of sin and what it is to be able to talk about what Moses did and how he reacted and how that applies to us. So we go to 1 John 1, 5 first. It says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So the first thing that we need to understand is God is perfection, purity. There's no, when you have light as a principle, it's not 99% light and just a little bit of shadow. It is 100% light. James says that every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not shift like changing shadows. That's the picture we have of how good he is. And incorrectly, we get the wrong view of God, believing that he is like, I don't know, he's walking around with a clipboard, like looking at your life, and you're walking through your day, and you think something bad, and he's like, mm, check. Say something bad, oh, check. Drink something bad, oh, check, check. It's like, that's the picture that we have of God, which is not the correct picture. He is perfection. That is who he is. Well, then if that's who he is, then what is sin? Well, let me give you a picture. It's going to take you a minute. I'm going to give you a sec. This is sin. Some of you will never get this, and your neighbor's going to have to explain it to you, okay? I'm going to give you a minute to stare, and I want you to understand how this machine works. All right, for those of you who are not mechanically minded at all, you have a battery pack. You see it? That's the power source. From that battery pack, you have wires that run, right? They run to a little motor. That mechanism is connected to a dull butter knife. And that dull butter knife is laying across the wires that are running the motor. Okay? All machines are designed for a purpose, all of them, or you wouldn't design the machine. You start out by designing a machine to accomplish a particular purpose. A car is designed to move, a furnace is designed to warm you up. All machines have a purpose. What is the purpose of this machine? To hurt itself. The only thing that this machine will do if it is successful is stop itself from running. Eventually, that dull knife will eat through those wires, and when it does, the motor will not have power, and it will be dead. So the artist who designed this was trying to make a statement about a machine whose function is to hurt itself. This is a picture of sin. This is the right picture of sin. Sin is not just something that ticks God off in an arbitrary checklist. All sin, you guys, and I need you to hear this tonight. If you hear nothing else, hear this. All sin is a form of self-harm. It is. All sin is God saying, hey, this is harmful to you. 
It's not about you keeping him happy. It's not about you keeping him pleased. It's the God of the universe saying, I designed you. I know who you are. I know what fulfills you. I know what builds you up. I know what connects you to your purpose. I know what connects you to me. I know what connects you to each other. I've given you that stuff. Anything else is a poison to you. And we look at him and we're like, nah, 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 nah. You just want us to play by your rules. He's like, no, no, the rules are for you. They're not for me, they're for you. I designed you to be like me. And so all sin truly at its, at its core becomes a kind of self-harm where it may feel good in that moment, it may look good in that moment. You may not understand it as that in that moment. But all sin, if we properly understand it, is not just God's checklist. It's him saying, child, I love you enough to set up some guardrails for you in your life. All sin is a form of self-harm. What do I mean by that? I've said this before from this stage, but sex, it's like we look at sex and we're like, oh, God doesn't like sex. It was kind of his idea, okay? He designed it. He designed it to be in that fire. He designed to be in the proper fireplace. It is mysterious, you guys. It is. It connects you to a human being emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, in ways that are mysterious and difficult to understand. God's like, sex is not transactional. This is not just something that you, you get with somebody you met with yesterday on the internet, and it's a transaction between the two of you, and you're like, ah, it's just a physical act, no big deal. It isn't just a physical act. It connects all of these other things. And he says the right space for that is marriage, where you need to be emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally connected to another human being. So he gives you the freedom to breach that. You can say, ah, I'll do what I want. It feels good. And it does feel good. But he's like, you know what? It costs you. It is a self-harm to grab that in the short term. Now, here's what I need you to hear from me tonight. I am not preaching a message of shame. If you feel it tonight, that is not the Lord's voice. I am not preaching a message of guilt tonight. I'm preaching a message of grace and of freedom. God rescued you from this self-harm. It's a poison that he doesn't want you to take as his child. And I need you to hear it and understand it as that, or we aren't going to learn anything from Moses. Child, God loves you way, way, way more than to just let you harm yourself over and over and over again and be like, I told him. No, he's provided the path back to him. So that being said, let's jump to, light, to, to the life of Moses here, Okay. And to give you a little bit of background, because I, a lot of you aren't going to really understand, the, with the Old Testament history, uh, because there was a famine, Jacob moves, he transplants his entire family, which may have been as many of like 70 to 100 people, to Egypt, all right? And that family grows over centuries. And over centuries, that family of 100 plus becomes 2 plus million people, the Hebrew people. In Egypt. We're talking over like 400 years. It's a long time. Four, uh, four million, two to five million, okay? We don't know exactly how many, but I'll, let's just call it two million for the sake of argument tonight, all right? Well, Egypt enslaves the Hebrew people. They only know slavery in Egypt. 
Okay, so that's who they are. That's where they're stuck. A lot of, it's almost funny to me in history where people would be like, man, how did they build the pyramids? You guys, slaves. Slaves is how they built the pyramids. There are a lot of empires that have done really amazing things. You know how almost all of them did them? Slavery, (laughs) because they had human labor, people that they didn't mind exploiting. That has been the story of human history, and that was the story of the Hebrew people in Egypt. So for hundreds of years, they're slaves to this unbelievable empire, this powerhouse of Egypt. And Moses' story, because we're going to kind of start in the middle of it, he is a Hebrew, but he's adopted into Pharaoh's family. He's adopted one of the princess. It's a long story, but the princess basically sees him in a river because he's been given up by his mother. She adopts him, brings him in, and he's raised as a prince in Egypt crazy. He gets Egyptian schooling, all of the benefits of being part of the royal family he gets. And so this guy who looks like a Hebrew, who is a Hebrew, who everybody knows is a Hebrew, it's not a secret, is raised as the prince of Egypt underneath Pharaoh. And this is where we get into our scripture for tonight. It goes like this. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw, he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed him, and he hid the body in the sand. I, I'm just going to tell you, Moses is writing this, all right? He's telling his own story as he writes Exodus I wish he'd given us so much more detail. This is so fast. I'm like, this is an entire movie's worth of an events. Matter-of-factly, he's being like, he killed him and hit him in the sand, and now we're moving on, okay? But that's what he did. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. Process that for just a second. We're going to come back to that little tidbit right there. And the man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Oof. (laughs) Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Um, Just to give you some context, this is the Sinai Peninsula. That is where he was in Egypt. This is Midian that he escapes to, all the way on the other side of the Red Sea. These are real places. These are real people. This is a real story. This isn't made up. So he flees all the way to Midian, out to this desert, and sits down beside a well. All right. So I want to know just this, this fast story that we have from Moses, this turning point in his life, which has full of turning points. But this particular one, he's, he's uh, grown up conflicted. I mean, racially, he is not an Egyptian, and yet he's raised in Pharaoh's house. So can you imagine being pulled between two different worlds, watching your own people being beaten at the same time that he's experiencing all the privilege that comes in, in be- being in Pharaoh's home? and the resentment that sits in him, and the, the, the self-confliction that sits in him, that all boils over on one day where he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he kills him in that moment. All of that stuff comes up in him, and he just acts. Actually, he doesn't just act. He looks both ways to make sure nobody's watching, and then he acts, and then he hides the body. So what can we learn? 
when it comes to how we think about sin or how we think about evil or how we think about what you and I do, what we think, what we say, for a God who is perfect, who loves us, if we know that sin is self-harm, how do we relate to what Moses just did? Well, there's a few things that I just see right off the bat here, okay? One is that Moses thinks he can stay in control. Verse 12, after looking all directions to make sure no one was watching, all right? One of sin's greatest lies is that you can stay in control, that you can stay in control. You can keep your hand on that steering wheel. You guys, sin starts in the passenger seat. It doesn't stay there. You hear me? Ever. You give it time, you give it space, it puts a hand on the wheel. Before you know it, you are in the passenger seat and it is driving every time. But it always starts this way. You think that you can stay in control, and Moses does for sure. Romans 6, 12 says, don't let sin control the way you live. Again, that's Romans 6, 12. Don't let sin control the way you live. What else? What else do we see in Moses' life? Well, it's easy. He starts to live hypocritically. Did you pick up on this? The day after he murders someone, he sees two people picking a fight with each other and says, why are you beating up your friend? (laughs) Are you grabbing the level of hypocrisy here? There's a really good chance. I mean, geographically, I don't know where he's standing in this moment, and I don't know where he hid that body. There is a really good chance he can see that location from where he's standing in that moment. Within 24 hours, he's looking these dudes straight in the eye and saying, hey, why are you beating up your friend? You have lost your right to be a counselor in that moment. Jesus will say it later when he's talking about conflict in Matthew 7, where he says, why do you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye and ignore the log that sits in your own? You guys, some of the most hypocritical people that I know, including myself, have giant sins that sit in them that they're unwilling to deal with, and that's why that feeds this hypocrisy. And I'm not just preaching this to you, this is to me too. Sometimes that just comes out in being critical of other people over, and you see that immediately come out of Moses' life. Jesus says, no, remove the log from your own eye, then you have the right to examine the speck. What else with Moses? Well, he loses the ability to steer or control. We said it was coming, right? Moses was afraid. Everyone knows what I did. If you think, this is going to sound super threatening. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but... It, I'll just, I'll just say the phrase, all right? Especially with private sin, we think we can control it. We think we can keep it private. We think we can keep it under wraps. We think that it won't infect other people. It's not the way sin works. There's this phrase in the old King James that comes from Numbers. Let me get the exact verse. Numbers 32, 23. It says this, Be sure your sins will find you out. That means those sins that you have an intention to keep private don't have a habit of staying private. So you choose gossip with your friend, and you're like, yeah, but it's just us. And so I'm just choosing to gossip with this one friend, and, I, and, and I'm gonna, like, that's, that's us. That's just between us. Well, you know what? It's, it's a form of self-harm. You're actually damaging trust in that relationship, and you're eroding. You're making that relationship weaker every time it happens in a way that it feels good, I know, to do it, but what you're actually doing is eroding trust with a friend. And even if you're like, well, you know what? Then I won't do that with a friend. I'll just do that inside. Well, then do you know what happens to you when you hold that stuff inside? It just becomes a poison that you allow to sit in your soul, and your God who loves you is like, don't. 
Don't. That stuff that's, that starts private doesn't end private. That's not the way that it works. Last, he's forced to make some desperate decisions. He flees from Pharaoh, goes to live in Midian, verse 15. All of this God will use, by the way. God is not done, as we will see next week, not by a long shot with Moses. But his behavior in killing that man in cold blood forces him to run. And again, that's part of what sin does. It takes the decision-making out of your hands. God's like, this isn't what I called you to. James, um, is that where I'm at here in my notes? Yeah. James gives us this process for sin. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to hear it. James is James 1, 14 to 15. He says this, temptation comes with desire. It starts where it starts. Oh, I have a desire to do this. And then that desire entices us and drags us away. And he says, then that, that desire and the behavior gives birth to sinful action. And when allowed to grow, those actions give birth to death. So James draws a line and says, hey, it starts small and innocent. It's just like this little temptation thought. But when we allow that to linger, it drags us away and entices us. And when we're enticed, eventually, if we let that linger, it gives way to behavior. And James, like, there's, there's only one place this road ends, and it's death. All sin is a form of self-harm. Really good news you have to preach to us tonight, Ben. <laughs> All sin is a form of self-harm. Well, I told you, tonight doesn't have to be heavy, you guys. And here's why. Because the God of the universe loves us like crazy, and the core of his being is forgiveness and love, and it's mercy, and he's given us a path out of that mess. So if you have been a part of places that have preached at you shame and guilt and hurt and tried out of fear to motivate you to stop sinning, then I'm sorry. Because it works sometimes, but it's really short-lived. The reality is the God of the universe loves you enough not to want to watch you harm yourself anymore. So I just want to extend his invitation tonight. I mean, I'll give it a little bit later, but it's like the invitation is accept his grace. There are four ways I want to hit tonight. If you have been running, I mean, like we have a picture tonight of Moses running from his sin. So maybe you got something in your past that you're like, you know what? I have just run away from that. Because I, I think, you, you know, the old fight or flight thing, like the ways that we react to stress, fight, fright, fleas, freeze, fleas, whatever, you know, their words, all of those things. Um, Moses does both. There is the fight. I mean, he, he murders a man. There is the flight. He runs away to Midian. But I, I think similarly for us, there are a couple of wrong ways that we respond to stuff that sits in our past. And one we see in Moses, you just run away from it. It's like I hide from it. I don't, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to talk about it. I don't want to even process that. I just leave it in its little box, in its corner, and it'll be fine. All right? So it, it's what Moses does. I'm going to run away from Pharaoh and hide in the desert. The other thing people will do when it comes to sin is they'll double down. They'll fight it, but the wrong way. They don't really fight against it. They fight the people who, are like, who think that it's wrong. They'll be like, you know what? It's your problem. I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I think that this is going to be fine, and so I'm going to keep this course. Come hell or high water, this is, the, this is the direction I'm sailing, no matter what. Those are the reactions to sin. You guys, both of those paths end in pain. This is the path that does not. This is the path that ends in freedom for you. The first piece is to recognize th that God's grace covers you. 
Let me just give you some verses. I want these to wash over you tonight. 2 Corinthians 5, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so we could be made right with God through Christ. Let me give you Isaiah. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. Lamentations 3, God's mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. You guys, God actually says that you can be perfect. I need you to hear my explanation in that so you don't misunderstand. Because Jesus' perfection is what is placed on your shoulders. I'm not saying you can live a perfect life and never sin again. What I'm saying is when you sin tomorrow... God's mercy, which is the righteousness of Jesus, which is perfect, sits on your shoulders. It's borrowed righteousness. You don't have a righteousness of your own. You have one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So that when, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. That's not how he defines you. He sees his son. He sees the perfection of him in you. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we have this beautiful picture of his mercies are new every day. And you can come back to him and you can live in forgiveness. For those of you who have given your lives over to Jesus, he didn't just die for your sins in the past. So every day you've got to come back and be like, will you die again for me? He doesn't, it, like past, present, future, it is taken care of and washed clean, white as snow. What an amazing teaching that we live under in the life of grace. Second, if you're struggling with this, I mean, if you're in a place where you're like, yeah, I've got a bunch of garbage in my life and I don't know what to do with it. This is step one. Recognize that God's grace covers you. It's what he wants. Number two, listen for and accept his conviction. Listen for and accept his conviction. In John 16, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit that will be given to us. And one of his roles is to convict us of sin. Now, that may sound dark. You may like, be like, well, that's not, that doesn't sound fun. No, again, if all sin is self-harm, then this is God's way of saying, I'm going to help, I'm going to send you a helper who's going to help you out of that, who's going to point you a different path, who's going to show you a different direction. That's going to be the gift I give to you. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, Godly sorrow leads us away from sin and toward, us, toward salvation. Worship for me, you guys, worship like we did tonight, is a checkpoint all the time for me. Like I, when I come into worship, part of that is, hey, Lord, check my heart. What, belong, what does not belong right now? And he brings stuff to the surface that I don't particularly care for. Hey, Ben, you, you might have had a wrong attitude about this thing. Or Ben, I think you're holding a grudge against this person. And I get to, in that moment, either what? Fight or flight? Like, or surrender. I get to give that to the Lord and be like, God, would you work in that right now in me? Thank you for drawing that to the service. Help me understand it. Why am I feeling that way? Why am I thinking about that? Lord, would you forgive me for that? Communion becomes a checkpoint for me. I go to a church that practices communion every week. What about even just the daily rhythms of getting on your knees and being like, God, search my heart. Help me understand if there's anything wicked going on inside of me, God. Is that built into your rhythms? Should be. Holy Spirit, help me understand myself. Help me give you the things that are self-harm. Godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Number three, moving right along. Own your wrong behaviors and their effects. 
James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. This is the most countercultural thing I will preach tonight. Because the last thing you want to do if you are caught in some garbage that you know is garbage, the last thing you want to do is go to another human being and be like, this is what I did. (laughs) There is such freedom, you guys. Sin is like mold, all right? Do you know what it needs? Do you know what mold needs? It needs darkness, and it needs to be left alone. That's it, and it will grow. Sin's a lot like that. You mess with it, you bring it into the light, it starts to die. And I can't tell you the number of people, even in this room, who I know things like pornography addictions that they struggled with for years. And you know what the breaking point was? Having another person that they trusted enough to be like, this is hurting me, and I don't know how to get free of this, and I need help. Confessing your sins to one another and praying for each other that you might be healed. There's so much freedom when you drag that sin out into the light. So much freedom. God's grace, others' grace. Jesus even goes to the point of saying, hey, if you're ever, you know, like in a worship service, they worshiped at the temple. So he's like, if you're ever bringing your gift at the altar, which was a part of their act of worship, and you remember that you've wronged someone, get out of there. Go make it right. Right then, in that spot. Leave your gift on the altar. Go do it. That's how important that was to Jesus. Like, get that sin out. Get it out in the open. Go make it right. Last one, number four. Accept forgiveness and chart a new path accept forgiveness and chart a new path. Proverbs 4 tells us basically to run away from obvious temptation. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And all over scripture, this this Greek word metanoia, which means repentance, that's again, that's a churchy word, but it just means to turn away. So if I'm pointed this direction and I realize that I have been, you know, I have been worshiping at the altar of, you name it, alcohol, and I have been chasing this thing because it numbs some kind of pain, or because it turns my brain off in a way that I like, or because, you know, there's a reason why Paul tells us not to be mastered by anything, because God gave us a brain for us to use. And so repentance means realizing that there's this wrong behavior, and I change my mind, and I also change my direction. I chart a new path. So how do I chart a different path towards something else? I'm no longer in the space of harming myself. You guys, if we don't do this, I'm not trying to jam this down your throats, but if we don't do this, our hearts start to get cold. Sin starts to sit in that driver's seat more and more often, and we begin to feel the effects of that poison more every day that we sit in it. We don't like to share this with each other, and we don't like to talk about it, but I'm telling you, there's freedom from it. I haven't outgrown this. Just a couple weeks ago, my wife, I mean, like, I'm I'm married, right? Have six kids, uh, 49 years old. You, You don't keep track as closely after a while, all right? But no, a couple weeks ago, my wife confronted me over a sin in my life. Too tender for me to talk about publicly tonight. I mean, just in terms of like, I don't want to spell out the details, but I do want to tell you that, that my loving wife who saw something self-destructive in me was like, I think we should talk about that. And I have the option in that moment of how do I respond? Do I run away? Do I double down? Do I accept God's grace and forgiveness? 
Do I try to understand where she's coming from? Do I chart a new path? Do I allow God to break my heart again? Or do I let it get cold? God loves you too much to watch you self-destruct. I love you too much to watch you self-destruct. I don't want you to feel guilt. I don't want you to feel shame. I want you to feel the freedom that comes when you surrender that garbage to the Lord and to each other, and you allow God to shine a light on those places that otherwise you would feel alone and isolated. I got one more screen I want to give to you. Um, this is homework for later, all right? So if you want, I'm not going to talk about it. If you want to grab your phone, because uh, part of what I was spent some time looking at this week was how we think about sin in the future. How do we protect ourselves from temptation that sits out in the future? And this is that, but I don't have time to preach this message tonight, all right? So you take a picture of that, and, uh, and you can come back to that in your own time sometime this week. But here's, here's what I want to put out there for you tonight, because we have some time to respond and worship. And here's all I am asking of you, to search your heart, to give God space to search your heart, and to ask him, are there things in my life that you really just need to be laid down? And during this worship time, we're going to leave the front open. You want to come down, because sometimes there's something about getting out of your seat and kneeling down somewhere else and being like, I need to make this right. This space is open for that. You don't want to use that? Fine. That's 100% fine. You can stay in your seat. You want to come down? Nobody will bother you. Nobody will mess with you. You just pray by yourself right here, all right? If you want to pray with somebody, we'll have some staff gathered around the back and the sides, um, and, and you can go there, seek one of them out, and they'll pray over you in this space. You can grab somebody you trust close to you, your small group leader, and say, hey, could you pray with me in this moment? Because I want you to understand this is real. God of the universe loves you, doesn't want to watch you self-destruct, and tonight is just an opportunity to lay that stuff at his feet and say, God, I need your grace and I need your forgiveness. I need it new again today. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you that your mercies really are new every day. That you don't, you do not uh, scoff, frown, or just get so impatient and tired of us asking for forgiveness for the same things over and over again. I pray for people who have felt only judgment from you to feel your hand of mercy and love tonight. I pray that image that we have sometimes of you with the clipboard uh, would be gone. And I pray that you'd help us to see you in your fiery, loving perfection, creating a path for us to be close to you. So Jesus, I, pay for, I pray for the, the pain that sits in this room, people who have felt separated from you. I pray for the pain that exists in our world, the death and destruction that people are walking through right now. And Jesus, I pray that in your power, you would bring a different thing that sits uh, through your son, hope and peace and joy and presence and forgiveness and grace and mercy. So as we enter into worship, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction in our hearts where we need it and the freedom that comes from confession to you and each other. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.